Hello, everyone, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the premium music podcast network. If you're looking for music podcast choices, look no further than Pantheon. Uh, one of my favorite new finds on there is called Hangin' and Bangin' by legendary drumming brothers Carmine and Vinny Apice. Ooh. Uh, they've had a pretty stellar lineup of guests so far, and it's just a good old-fashioned rock and roll fun. Um, I used to have a drum instruction book and practice guide that was put together by Carmine Apice, so I thought that was pretty cool. And <laughs> now my show's on the same network as him. Right? Ooh. It's uh, serendipitous. That's pretty cool. You can check that podcast and all the other Pantheon shows at pantheonpodcast.com. Uh, today, we are talking about the fifth studio album by the legendary rock and roll of, huh? Rock and roll hall of fame inducted <laughs> and one of the most important groups in rock and roll history, The Who. Yes. Uh, the famous The Who, the famous Mongolian folk rock and heavy metal band formed in 2016 uh, that melds traditional Mongolian instrumentation and vocals with uh, heavy rock and metal stylings. Yeah, you did what, like eight pages worth I of I did eight pages on notes. So I hope that's the right <laughs> band. Are you talking about somebody different? N- no. Oh, sweet. Okay, them. good. Uh, no, of course not. And we're talking about The Who. Yes. Legendary, innovative masters of rock and roll. This album, Who's Next, is generally viewed by critics as the greatest album of their careers and one of the best albums of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, I've wanted to cover this record since the very first days of this podcast, and for one reason or another, it kept getting delayed on the schedule, uh, mostly by me. There's such a dense history surrounding this record, especially the concept behind it, oh, that yeah. it, it seems kind of daunting to do. But I think after two full years of doing this, uh, I may be ready to tell the convoluted story behind the whole thing. <laughs> uh, but first, Kyle, who are the who? Who are the who? The who are four dudes from England. Uh, Roger Daltrey on vocals, Pete Townshend on guitar and vocals, uh, John Entwistle on bass and vocals, and Keith Moon on drums. That's the original lineup. Yes. Uh, sadly, uh, both Keith Moon and John Entwistle have both passed away, uh, and they have been variously filled in by different musicians over the years, uh, so the Who is still able to perform and tour a little bit and, and record. Right. But during this time, it was those four. Right. The Who was formed in the early 60s in England. Uh, he mentioned uh, the four Four guys. Uh, Roger Daltrey was expelled from school at age 15, formed a group in the late 50s called the Detours. The, the band played weddings and such, good paint gigs, hmm. and Daltrey also controlled the finances, uh, something that would cause issues with The Who and their management years later, over and over and over again. <laughs> uh, in 1960, Daltrey recruited Entwistle, uh, who was carrying his bass down the street to join the Detours. Um, and in mid-1961, Entwistle recorded, uh, recruited uh, Pete Townsend and his guitar to join the group. Uh, the original incarnation of that band had Entwistle on bass, Daltrey on lead guitar, Townsend on guitar, Harry Wilson on drums, and Colin Dawson on vocals. Uh, it was very much Daltrey's band at that time, and he ran it the way he wanted to. Did you have something to say? No, no. Oh. Sorry, uh-huh. I, was, I was burping. Oh, boy. Uh, in 62, they fired the drummer, one position uh, that would constantly be an issue for The Who, <laughs> and hired Doug Sandum. Uh, Dawson left the band after he got into frequent arguments with Daltrey, another long-standing issue with the band, uh, the constant arguing and fighting between members. No. This uh, rears its head pretty constantly. And Daltrey moved to lead vocals at that point. Uh, the band got a management contract through a connection of Townsend's mother and proceeded to change their name after they discovered that there was already a band called Johnny Devlin and the Detours. Uh, names on the table at the time were No One, <laughs> The Group, The Hair, but they settled on The Who oh, temporarily. Man, they should have gone with The Hair. Because, that would have been great. Because it had more pop punch. 
You heard the hair yet, bro? Oh, oh man. It's so great. What about the hair's new record, uh, Billy? <laughs> you mean Tommy? Tommy. That's what I said. Billy the Tommy. Hair. Tommy by the hair. <laughs> uh, so they had found regular gigs, and in what would be uh, another common occurrence in the history of The Who, they replaced their manager. With their new manager in place, they threatened to fire Sandum, their current drummer, if he didn't improve. Uh, Sandum left pissed off, but he left his drums for any stand-in to come in and play. So he just... <laughs> Left his drums there. Sandum and Townsend wouldn't speak for 14 years. Oh, my God. After that. So in April 64, one of the stand-in drummers happened to be Keith Moon, who was playing semi-professionally in a band called the Beachcombers. His energy immediately warranted an audition during which he tore a drum head and broke his drum pedal. Wow. His bass drum pedal. That's a, And they naturally, of course, offered him the job, probably because of that. Uh, that energy and intensity was not limited to his drumming. Uh, as his partying and destructive nature would become legendary in rock and roll lore. So, The Who naturally changed managers right after this to Peter Meaden, who thought they would be perfect fits for the growing mod movement in London, which was more involved in R&B, soul, and jazz. Uh, he renamed, renamed the band at this point The High Numbers and dressed them up in mod clothes, gave them Beatlesque haircuts, and even wrote the lyrics for their first single called Zoot Suit. <laughs> It failed to reach the top 50, and the band went back to calling themselves The Who. Uh, at this point, they, start, they started to develop parts of their stage show that would last for the next 50 years. Daltrey starts to develop his microphone stage whip, where he twirls it and catches it. Uh, Moon starts to flip his drums, drumsticks uh, mid-beat, and Townsend would start to develop his windmill style of strumming. <laughs> also during this period, Townsend would slam his guitar into a low-hanging ceiling, breaking the guitar. Crowd started to laugh, and this pissed him off so much that he would slam his guitar to the ground over and over again, destroying it. <laughs> Seeing the crowd's reaction to that, Moon would destroy his drum set the next night, thus giving birth to that phenomenon that would become a cornerstone of rock shows during the 60s and 70s. Oh, and by this time, they had fired their manager again and replaced him with Kit Lambert and Chris Stamps. <laughs> so the band was starting to make a name for itself. Uh, would get their first taste of success with the release of the Townsend penned I Can't Explain, which would eventually reach the top 10 in the UK through constant playing on pirate radio. Uh, the success of the single would help them secure a deal with Decca Records. The switch of them having success with the original material did not sit well with Daltrey, who was more interested in playing R&B covers. Uh, at this point, those legendary tempers of The Who began to rear their heads again. During a few shows in Denmark, Daltrey flushed all of Moon's speed down the toilet and went after him and started punching him. When they returned to Britain, they fired Daltrey. They reinstated him shortly after on the condition that the band become a democracy and his, uh, his uh, authoritarian ways were uh, tempered. Uh, the next single released the following October would become their biggest hit to date. My Generation would get to number two on the UK chart. For the benefit of time, now that you know the beginning of the story... I'm going to give you the short version of their career up until the album we are talking about today. Ooh. Otherwise, we could be talking for hours. Yes. They would have several more albums with great success, uh, cracking guitars, blowing eardrums around the world. They would play at the Monterey Festival in 66, uh, a violent band in sharp contrast to the peace and love movement that was taking hold at the time. Yeah. Also on the bill was some guitarist named Jimi Hendrix. Mm. Hendrix, I think it's pronounced. Hendrix. Never heard of him. Uh, who Townsend would verbally assault and accused of stealing his act of destroying his guitar because <laughs> Hendrix was planning to do the same thing. 
The Who managed to go on first, but in the words of many an an attendee, Hendrix blew The Who off the stage. (laughs) Which, you know, it's Jimi Hendrix. You know, as you do. In 1969, they released Tommy after Mm. working on it for almost 18 months. Uh, They would perform at the Woodstock Festival, little small little festival called Woodstock, a few months later, after demanding $13,000 in advance. They didn't have any money at all. (laughs) Uh, They were supposed to take the stage on Saturday night, but would not take the stage until 5 a.m. on Sunday morning, where they would proceed to play almost all of Tommy, and according to Daltrey, play the worst gig of their entire careers. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the generation-defining music festival that's been talked about since... Yeah. Worst gig of their careers. Worst gig of their careers. At yeah, some no point during the show, hippie leader uh, Abby Hoffman jumped up on the stage, started to talk about the arrest of John Sinclair, to which Townsend responded by pushing him off the stage and yelling, fuck off my fucking stage. <laughs> mm. I love that story. <laughs> At the end of the uh, show, Pete threw his guitar into the crowd. Somebody's got that somewhere. Somebody has that guitar. Somebody's got that sure. guitar somewhere. At least a piece of it. Or several pieces. Or, well, one. I I would say if it broke, that those pieces ended up in different places. But for sure. But somebody has a piece of that guitar somewhere for sure. For sure. Um, at uh, at the end of the day, they hated the Woodstock experience uh, and would have a far better time at the Isle of Wight festival a few weeks later. Turns out they played at all three of the biggest music music festivals of all time. Yeah, you know, no big deal. So now we're getting close to this record, Who's Next, which is a huge story of its own. And so let's take a look at where we are. As I mentioned before, this album is one of the most commercially and critically loved albums of all time. Mm -hmm. And it lies in between Tommy Mm -hmm. and Quadrophenia, two of the most important concept albums of all time. Oh, yeah. Oh, and by the way, they also released what some consider to be the best live album of all time. Live at Leeds. Live at Leeds. These were all released in a span of four years. years (laughs) that output once again like we always talk about is unheard of nowadays and it speaks to how magical that period around 1970 really was yeah it was this creative apex in rock and roll where everything was coming to a point and people were just flourishing um for me personally uh, i didn't come to appreciate the who until a lot later than i would have liked um as was the case back then, I was influenced by my brother as to what music I listened to, uh, and he was not a Who fan. So in turn, I was not a Who fan. I was not a Who hater. I just didn't hear enough of it to formulate a real opinion about them. Uh, the music that I did hear, stuff they played on MTV, like Eminence Front and Who Are You, I liked, but it didn't make me run out and buy the records. Uh, the other stuff that I heard on uh, AOR, album-oriented radio, like uh, almost every song on this album and stuff from Tommy, I also liked, but again, still not enough to run out and buy their records. And then I saw the film for Tommy and I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I loved the music, but what what was the acid queen and why was Tina Turner playing her? <laughs> why was Elton John in the movie? And there seemed to be a weird pedophile current running through it which even at 13 or 14 years old, I could recognize and go, mm, no way. Yeah, this is a little awkward. So I kind of put them on the back burner as a band that I enjoyed, but didn't dig too deep on. Fair enough. So then in the summer of 1990, I started hanging out with show consultant Chris mm-hmm. in earnest. Uh, we went to concerts together, went to some record conventions together, and we shared as much as we could with each other about music. And I remember super vividly hanging out at his house one day 
after we'd gone to a record convention and comparing some of our finds. I had bought a yellow vinyl Ruddles record and a bootleg video of a Rush show in Toronto. And he had bought some Beatles stuff that he was chasing. And he started to talk about these Pete Townsend records called Scoop and Another Scoop, which contained a shitload of demos from his solo career and his time with The Who as well. And on it is a version of the song called Behind Blue Eyes from Who's Next that is very different from the version everyone is familiar with. And I was immediately hooked. And that three minutes was enough to open the door to The Who, a door that I've yet to close all these years later. And that version sounds like this. so much different yes than the original but that one of the amazing things that i have found through the years is how much material he recorded yeah and has released bits of of songs in not not even completely formed ideas just 45 seconds of something that he was working on that you recognize as part of a song 10 years later yeah and it's incredible that he's willing to be like hey there's this is warts and all. There's shit on here. But just to be able to share that kind of volume uh, with with the fans, is a, it's a cool thing. I love that Roger Daltrey happened when he happened. Because had he been 15 years earlier, he wouldn't have had the luxury of having the technology, the tape available, all those things that were quality enough that he could do that, where he could just record and record and record, and the tape was fairly cheap and it lasted a long time. Yeah. And had he been 15 years later, I don't think he would have been afforded that luxury simply because pop music had moved on to a point where they weren't allowing the artists the time and the 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 luxury of having the studio time until they had already made it very, very huge. Right. It was I kind think- of an in-between era. He yeah, Townsend exactly. caught it, but on the yeah on the at the very beginning, <laughs> before they were shutting them down, yeah. saying you got to go in, you got two weeks to record Excuse a record, yeah. and that's it. You got to get back on the road. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so back back to this record. So after the success of Tommy, they took some time off for other projects, films and stuff, uh, but not much, and then began recording this album. But it was a different sort of record entirely. And as much as I want to talk about the Lifehouse project mm. here, I'm going to wait until we're in the track by track to really get into it. I don't even know if you can call it a record. What this? Lifehouse. Oh, Lifehouse. Because, I mean, it. It was. No, that's why I keep calling. It, I keep calling it the Lifehouse Project. Yeah, because it, it's the multimedia experience. Extravagant. Is what I saw it referred to as. Oh, it's something. Yeah. Um. Oh. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say it would have been. Uh, I don't want to go back to Tommy too much, but Tommy was sort of the first real rock opera absolutely uh there were a couple people that tried similar concepts before but didn't really pull it off at least the first well-known and well-received yes that's that's a good way to put it and then there was all this pressure for them to just do it again Mm -hmm. and it built up and built up and built up into this huge thing and then uh 
Yeah, when does Tommy 2 come out? Right, you know, and they kept selling it that way. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kit, um, Kit Lambert. Lambert kept trying to sell it that way to music executives. Like, no, this is this is more Tommy. This is going to be another Tommy. It's, mm. it's, it's going to be an even bigger Tommy. And it just kept building into this thing, and then it just blew up. Just, <laughs> and they're like, we can't do this. It's too big. <laughs> Fuck it. Uh, so Who's Next uh, was released on August 14th, 1971, and uh, was an immediate success. Uh, sold several million copies over the years, and it's many iterations, regular edition, super deluxe edition, and so on. Peaked at number four in the U.S., number one in the U.K., uh, and is just about uh, just on about every best of list over the last fifty years. Do you have some info on that stuff? I'm sure you do. I do. I count on you for that. Oh goody! <laughs> so, uh, 2003, Rolling Stone ranked it as 28th on its list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Maintained that same ranking, ranking 28th in the 2012 revisited list, and moved to 77th. In the 2020 revisited list. Mm. Still, though, mm-hmm. top, 100 top 100 greatest albums of all time. That's pretty good. Album appeared as number 15 on Pitchfork Media's list of the 100 best records from the 1970s. Uh, in 2007, it was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame for lasting qualitative or historical significance. I do which, believe there's two T-Swift albums ahead of it on that list. <laughs> and that just makes me want to throw up in my mouth. But go on. That's still pretty amazing, though. I mean... <laughs> Number one peak chart position in the UK. Number four peak chart position in the US. Uh, US triple platinum, UK platinum. Not surprisingly, I feel like this album should be way bigger numbers wise. Sales wise, yeah. I feel like these numbers might be very conservative. They're very disappointing when I saw them. Right? I expected like, this to be, to be like 15, 20 million records. Yeah, right? And it's like, I mean, you look at The Who, all told, they've sold over 100 million albums. Yeah. They received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the British Phonographic Industry in 1988. That is the British Phonographic Industry, not the British Pornographic Industry. Are you sure? They received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grammy Foundation. They've been inducted into the Rock and, Hall, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They've been inducted into the UK Music Hall of Fame. They have seven albums on Rolling Stone's 2003 list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Seven. The fifth most out on the list, only beaten out by... The Beatles, Bob Dylan, Rolling Stones, and Bruce Springsteen, which good company to be in there. Springsteen's got more. Uh, Springsteen has at least an e- equivalent amount. I did not actually look at the list, right. but I mean. Yeah, you. I would expect the numbers to be higher. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that they're not. They have the accolades. They have the history. Right. And then you look at the number sales and you're like, wait a minute, this should be way huge. And it's not for some reason. I and this is one of those records that is critically adored. Yes. And of course, our pal, our old pal Robert Christigau, was at it again. He loved this album when it first hit, came out, saying it was the best hard rock album in years and, quote, achieves the same resonant immediacy in the studio that it does live. But then when he reviewed it in the 1980s, when The Who had started to release some questionable inferior records, Mm -hmm. he called it, quote, the worst kind of art rock, and that the album revealed itself to be less tasteful in retrospect because of all of Daltrey's histrionic noodling and (sighs) Townsend's synth noodling. And once again, I say, what a colossal boob this guy is. (laughs) So because their material suffered in later years, as a lot of artists do, it should not in retrospect, caused the strength of their older material to suffer. That's just shitty. See, and I even take that, I take that quote to mean that upon learning that they had to do so many takes 
and they, they saved all of that and that you can now go back and listen to it, that the original is diluted and worse. Yeah. And I hate that because it's like, that's how music works. Yeah. Nobody, nobody, well, isn't almost that how nobody, art works? It is. Nobody does it absolutely perfect on the first try. They want to keep doing it over and over and over until they find one that works the best for them that they think is going to be the most appealing. So, <laughs> so let me say, Mr. Christigau, that your earlier reviews were good when I first read them. But because your later reviews were terrible, in <laughs> retrospect, I now think your earlier ones sucked too. Oh, that's fair. Now, what an that's asshole. <clears throat> anyway, uh, cover art? Cover art. <laughs> Possibly one of the most iconic covers of the 1970s. You know, one of these days, he's going to hear something I say, and I hope he writes me a, a ridiculously long you know, email or something. You know he's well known for his short little tiny reviews, Good, right? send it to He'll me. He'll probably just write you an email that's like, Dear Mr. Stepanski, fuck off. Because Robert Christigau, Esquire. That means he's not I'm lawyer, doing my job. Is he an Esquire? No, I don't think okay. he is. Okay, cover art. Cover art. It's photographed taken by, uh, taken at, excuse me, Easington Colliery. I believe I'm pronouncing Colliery. it. Colliery. 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 I can't pronounce that. Colliery. Uh, of the band apparently having just urinated on a large concrete piling, protruding from a slag heap. Yeah. Easington Colliery. Easington Colliery. is a town in uh, County Durham, England, uh, with a history of coal mining beginning in 1899. Uh, the mine sadly closed on May 7th, 1993, leading to about 1,400 people losing their jobs and the town going into a huge economic slump. Well, that's sad. The decision to shoot the picture there came from uh, Entwistle and Moon discussing Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and they thought it was a cool, spacey-looking kind of a place. Um According to photographer Ethan Russell, uh, only Townshend actually urinated against the piling, so rainwater was tipped from an empty film canister to achieve the desired effect. Um, The sky in the background was added later to give the image what Russell called, quote, this otherworldly quality. Mm -hmm. Uh, The rear cover showed the band backstage at the De Montfort Hall in Lang... I'm bad at English. Uh Leicester? Leicester? Leicester, Leicestershire, Leicestershire, Leicestershire. Yeah. Leicestershire. Let's go, go with that. Uh, amongst a pile of uh, amongst a pile of broken furniture. Yeah, Leicestershire. I can't pronounce that one for some reason. Uh, Ethan Russell. Did you mention he took the picture? Yes. Uh, uh, actually, maybe I haven't gotten to that. Yet. Oh, okay. Go ahead. You continue. I know that I had. Uh, yes, I did. According to the photographer Ethan Russell, only Townshend actually. He had a stellar career of his own. He did. Claimed to fame being the only photographer to shoot album covers for the Rolling Stones, the Who, and the Beatles. Uh, he took the iconic photos used on the Let It Be cover. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, there were other album covers considered for Who's Next, including the group Urinating on a Marshall Stack. Which would have been fun. Ping seems to be popular among the group. Um, an overweight nude woman with the guy's faces covering her genitalia. Which also would have been fun. Uh, and although a- not sold probably in the U.S. <laughs> and also a picture of Moon in black lingerie and a brown wig. And that picture would make the inside of the CD in future releases. Mm, it's a I fun have, picture, too. I have that upstairs. And in true Pete Townsend fashion, he hated the cover. <laughs> and generally seems to not like much of anything. Uh, yeah. But, but he said this about the cover. It's another piece of shit. <laughs> I hate it. It's a horrible thing. Just horrible. Of course I don't <laughs> like it. It's got no artistic consequence whatsoever. No link to the music. It's meaningless. It's four guys stopping in a car and pissing up against a chunk of concrete. It was photographed by a very fine photographer in Ethan Russell, who, thank God, I really liked and used again for Quadrophenia. But I hate the front cover. 
I hate the back cover. I think it's disgusting. I suppose the notion was that 2001 A Space Odyssey was the film of the moment and we're pissing all over the 2001 monolith, which is even stupider because I think we all thought the film was fabulous. There's no irony in it. There's no truth in it. It's terrible. That's Pete Townsend, everybody. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so uh, I got to tell you one more kind of sad note yeah, uh, about this beforehand. So uh, sadly, the master tapes for this, for the Olympic sessions, uh, are believed to be lost because... They, they burn in the Universal Fire too? Possibly. But Virgin Records, when they bought uh, the Olympic Studios in England, they just threw a bunch of old recordings out. Who they were the just fuck? like who does hey, all that? the storage room? Yeah, just throw all this shit away. Don't hire interns to do that shit. This was in the 1980s too, so you figure it had been in operation since post World War II. So all the recordings from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. What's this? Just yeah, I dump it. What is this? Led Zeppelin masters? Crap. What is this? Rolling Stones? Garbage. Dump. What is this? this Miles new? Davis? Dump it. <laughs> Garbage. <laughs> do we need any of this? No. You know nah. what? Tape over it. Uh. <laughs> But uh, yes, you were saying the Universal Fire, uh, the New York Times has a list of artists that probably lost some material. It's an impressive list. Sad Fire, it's a huge list. And The Who is among them. And possibly, if there were any remaining copies of the masters for this, at the time, they were probably lost. Now, they have since then found the 16-track tape for Won't Get Fooled Again, a copy of it. Okay. Um, and the eight track tapes to all the other material on this album, except bargain and getting in tune. So the good news is there is at least a fairly good copy of all the originals of these. Um, There's got to be first gen cop. Townsend has to have like first gen have copies stuff, of stuff like this, just it, because he's put so much stuff out. He right? has to. But uh, if you don't know what the Universal Fire was, go look that up. It was an absolute tragedy. It burned the vaults at Universal Studios in Los Angeles. Burned. And it turns out that they were like, oh, these were the vaults where we were storing all of our original masters for, like, all these bands that you know from the 60s through the 2000s. It literally shows up on every single piece of research mm-hmm. that I do for every artist we're doing. We're, I'm starting to do research now on that we're doing Tina Turner yeah. soon. And, like, there it is again. Like, mm-hmm. Tina Turner is one of the artists believed to have lost, uh, you know, stuff in the Universal Fire. And it, every single person... That I've started to research, it says that. So it is It is my understanding from reading a little bit more about the Universal Fire that basically, you know, obviously you hear companies, oh, Universal and Sony and whoever, these are all different companies. But one company might invest millions of dollars in a facility to store tape and, and, and recorded materials. Well, why should the other company invest when they can just pay that company to store it for them? Ugh. And that's what ended up happening. So it isn't just necessarily Universal artists. It's anybody that Universal had purchased over the years. It's other companies that yeah. were paying Universal to store materials there. One giant warehouse full of all this artistic, like, yeah. wh- why? And a lot of it was not, like, there were not duplicates made of it, because nobody, nobody, it was, it's like, you know, who's going to pay to make those duplicates? And then, of course, nobody's like, well, right. you know, I'm, they're fine. They're in the warehouse. It's fireproof, right? <laughs> no, apparently not. It's a incredibly sad. Now nowadays you digitize it, have yeah. it stored in six different places, and it wouldn't be that big of a deal. You would think. Yeah, well. Until it turns out there's like some server crash, the 2022 Universal server crash, and no! all the music from from 2012 to 2021 was lost. We got hacked. Um, yeah. Should we take a quick break? Yeah, let's take a break before the track by track. We'll be right back. 
let's do a track uh, track by track. Let's I keep saying track by track. Track by, by track by track. Let's do a track by track. Bob O'Reilly. think of no better way to open the track by track portion of this podcast than by playing one of the most legendary beginnings right. of a song or record in all of rock history. That opening sound was recorded using a Lowry Berkshire Deluxe TB01 organ using its marimba feature <laughs> on repeat. Uh, most casual fr- uh, rock fans know the song as Teenage Wasteland. Mm. Because of the often used refrain in the song, there is actually another song called Teenage Wasteland that mm-hmm. he released years later uh, that sounds nothing like this. No, um, it's very slow and very melancholy. Very much. Uh, they most likely have no idea that the name of the song is actually Baba O'Reilly. Uh, the song, according to Townsend, was written after their experiences at the Woodstock and Isle of Wight festivals when he looked out over the great expanses and saw all of the garbage left behind by the kids of peace and love. Kids listened to this song for years and thought it was a celebration of the lifestyle of the day. Teenage Wasteland. We're all wasted. <laughs> but it was an indictment of the hypocrisy of them. And Townsend was good at doing just that. Yeah. Uh, the title of the song, Baba O'Reilly, are the names of two of Pete's musical and philosophical mentors. Uh, the Baba refers to uh, Maher Baba, a Indian spiritual master who remained completely silent from 1935 yeah. until his death in 1969. The ultimate irony, the loudest band of all time, one of their most famous songs inspired by somebody who was completely silent completely for 44 silent. years. I can't go freaking five minutes in silence, so kudos <laughs> to that guy, because uh, I can't do it. He a uh, fascinating guy, too. Hugely, um, huge, hugely influential spiritual leader from the mid-20th century. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of him, but he believed he was uh, his era's avatar. Which is a God in human form. Ooh. Um, he had, depending upon which numbers you look at, several hundred thousand to several million followers uh, over, throughout the world, mostly in Southern Asia, but a few, quite a few in Europe and uh, North America mm-hmm. as well. Um, and like you said, he was silent for 44 years. He communicated in the beginning, he would carry around a chalkboard with a piece of chalk and write on it to communicate with other people. And then he learned, he developed his own series of uh, sign language specifically to communicate with his interpreter. Wow. That's that's pretty amazing. That's some commitment right there. Yeah. So uh, in, in 1967, Pete had begun to explore his own spirituality and he was turned on to Baba's teachings. By 68, he had announced himself to be a fully devoted disciple of Baba and he would use a lot of those teachings as a basis for some of the main points of Tommy. In 1970, he wrote an article for Rolling Stone in which he 
in which, as a devoted follower of Baba, he was opposed to the use of psychedelics, one of the first countercultural rock stars to come out against their use. Um, I am not entirely sure how long that lasted, <laughs> as he battled addiction for many, many years, but perhaps he steered clear of psychedelics. Who's to say? I don't know. Anyway, that's the Baba of the song. Uh, the O'Reilly refers to Terry Riley, American composer, uh, American composer and musician. Uh, Riley is a minimalist composer, became notable for his use of tape effects for delay and repetition, kind of what we hear at the beginning of the song. If you have never listened to his music, give it a try. Uh, it is not for everyone, but it's quite unique. I feel like he deserves a judo chop. Yeah, I could see that. He's still alive, by the way. He's 86, and he's repeatedly worked with some of the more critical darlings of the classical world, like the Kronos Quartet, also worth a listen. So while that song is about the desolation at those two festivals that I mentioned, the song had its genesis in something much different. And I think it's time we start talking about the Lifehouse Project. Oh, goody. Uh, after the success of Tommy, Townsend was looking for another rock opera concept and said this about his experiences during the Tommy tour. Quote, I've seen moments in Who gigs where the vibrations were becoming so pure that I thought the whole world was just going to stop. The whole thing was just becoming so unified. He believed that the fans would dance themselves into oblivion, a moment of pure ecstasy, and they would leave their body behind and essentially become one with the music, which kind of sounds like a modern-day rave. Yeah. Uh, the reason why this never happened at any Who gigs is because everyone who was there had knowledge that the music would end, and they would all get up and go to work the next day. What he wanted to do was use information from the attendees, feed them into a computer that would translate their lives into music and develop what would become known as a universal chord. Now, that was just the concept. Uh, he still had to work on a storyline. It became this ridiculously convoluted idea. Yeah. Um, from show consultant Chris, the biggest Who fan I know, <laughs> he told me this. He said, Townsend couldn't explain Lifehouse to anybody. No one could comprehend what the hell he was talking about. His manager, Kit Lambert, on drugs and on a power trip, tried to shop Tommy without <laughs> Townsend's permission. While the band were recording tracks in New York for Lifehouse, Pete overheard a conversation Lambert was having, something like, if Townsend thinks he can block me on this, blah, blah, blah. Townsend felt betrayed, compounding with all of his dreams of this multimedia event going up in smoke. He drifted onto a terrace and thought about leaping to his death. He had hallucinations. The mafia were after him. The people were turning into frogs. The whole thing fucked him up really bad. <laughs> so we'll probably talk about this more later, but that's the short of it. Yeah. Um, so what happened was that the essentially the idea got scrapped, and they had all these songs laying there that were written for it. Uh, the bulk of those songs became this album, Who's Next? Uh, the only exception being the John Entwistle penned My Wife. One more, uh, one of, you, go ahead. Yeah, no, go. no, go ahead. No, you go. No, I don't actually have anything. You don't have anything at all? I was going to say, my wife, but... <laughs> you could say it. Oh, you just did. Yeah, I did. Uh, one of the more noticeable parts of this song is the violin solo at the end uh, that starts off so sweet and then picks up the pace and becomes frenetic by the end. Sounds like this.
Dave Arbus on the violin there. Good Lord. Mm-hmm. From the prog rock band East of Eden. Yeah, they were recording. Amazing. They were recording in Olympic Studios at the same time in London. And uh, in live settings, that part is usually played on the harmonica by Roger Daltrey. You got something. That's so cool. Yeah. We got to talk a little bit about uh, Glenn Johns really quick. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, uh, kind of the guy who made this album happen, really. Because so after scrapping uh, the Lifehouse project, basically they were just going to move on. <laughs> who was just going to move on? They were like, eh, screw it. We're going to scrap this and do our next project. Yep, and, something uh, else. Uh, Glenn Johns, who was a, an audio engineer, convinced them to basically take the material that they had recorded in New York, re-record it at Olympic Studios in Great Britain, and then put it together into something of an album. And they basically, it's funny to me that they gave uh, Glenn Johns an associate producer credit on this album. That being said, he also mastered every single track. Mm-hmm. He was given free reign to pick which songs ended up on the album and what order they ended up in. Yep. That does not sound like any associate producer. That's no associate producer. Nope. He's a, yeah, he's incredible. Yeah. Uh, this song ranked as uh, number 349 of the top 500 songs of all time by Rolling Stone. Which I'm surprised it's that low. It's considered one of the songs that helps shape rock and roll as well. And then there are all the places that it, this song appears in popular culture. Theme song of CSI New York. Mm-hmm. It's in Bugs Life. American Beauty, Resident Evil. It's in the Peanuts movie. It's in Stranger <laughs> Things. It's on Family Guy. It's the music for the players' introductions at the Staples Center for the Los Angeles Lakers. UFC uses it for video packages. Competitive eater Joey Chestnut uses it as his walk-in music. <laughs> the Patriots, the Georgia Bulldogs, the New York Rangers all use this song as either entrance music or halftime music. It's quite literally all over the place. And for all of that... It only appeared at number 11 on the Dutch chart and nowhere else. <laughs> Apparently the Dutch knew what was going on. I mean, that's... They, they have their finger... I mean, if I say nothing else on this podcast, it's that the Dutch have their finger on the pulse of modern music. They've definitely got their finger somewhere. It's, it's a bargain. The best I've ever had, in fact. Ooh. On an album chock full of rock gems, this song is one of my favorites. It's one of the most perfect marriages of lyrics and musical power. It is an essential rock and roll moment. And while the song appears on the surface to be a very simple love song, it is in actuality a love song between the narrator and God. This is the opening right here. So it's uh, I totally agree with you that it is it, this is definitely about you know it's written like a love song but it's all about becoming one with God and and Pete Townsend has actually said that uh, he said this song was inf- influenced by Indian mystic Maher Baba that we talked about earlier uh, and the subject of the song is God quote the song is simply about losing one's ego as a devotee of Maher Baba I constantly try to lose myself and find him. I'm not very successful, I'm afraid, but this song expresses how much of a bargain it would be to lose everything in order to be one with God. Hmm. 
And that's that there there's the premise of the song. That opening stanza of the song. I gladly lose me to find you. I gladly give up all I had. To find you, I'd suffer anything and be glad. It's a chase. It's a chase to lose one's ego, a very Eastern religion thing. You are constantly trying to lose yourself and find God, but how much of a bargain it would be to lose everything you have in order to achieve nirvana. It's a search for self-identity, and there's such great music being played here. The acoustic guitars in particular shine on this song. Uh, The drums, while typically frantic for Moon, uh, seem to have a bit of an understated quality, like they're just kind of bubbling under the surface just a little bit, like he's, you know, he wants to explode. And there's that kind of great drum fill right there in the middle. That's so perfect. And the bass guitar, especially in the middle eight section, exquisite. Um, And this is the first appearance of the ARP synthesizer Mm -hmm. on the record. Uh, And I just love the way Townsend balances everything out in this song. There's so many strong moments Many people consider this to be one of Townsend's finest musical moments, and it's it's kind of hard to argue with that. I, I do. You have some more, yeah. Oh, I got one more thing that literally just occurred to me uh, while we were talking about this. So the name of the song is Bargain, obviously. Traditional rock and roll, when you think of the bargain, you think of the Crossroads bargain. Ah. Somebody sold their soul to the devil some to become sort of devil great. devil went to Georgia thing. Yeah, they, to, they sold their soul to the devil to become great at playing the guitar, great at rock and roll, or to become a huge star. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that this, from a, an Eastern religion point of view, it's called bargain. It's about making a bargain, but it's not about becoming great for yourself. It's about rising up to the next level of greatness and becoming one with God. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's something that I, it literally just popped into my brain that like this song is completely different from anything else in rock and roll because of that. That's when you could talk about God fairly openly in songs in rock and roll songs without being labeled a Christian rock band, yeah. that they were able to explore kind of these philosophical uh, points of view and studies without someone labeling them, you know, yeah. as and at the time, the biggest or one of the biggest bands in the world talking about this stuff. But love ain't for keeping. Wait, it's not? No. Hey, it's a country love song right in the middle of this album. It is. And this song completely changed my opinion about The Who. Up until this point, I was just used to the rockers and uh, the completely acoustic numbers and not really anything in between those two. It's either really loud and 120 decibels or really quiet and soft. Um, But when I heard this song and how restrained and controlled Moon was again and how understated and tasteful the bass was, he wasn't doing run after run like Ox is. And to that fact that it sounds kind of bluesy and maybe even a little country, it really stands out for me. It's short. You know, two minutes, 10 seconds and instrument instrumentation, totally straightforward, bass, drums, vocals, and acoustic guitars, even an acoustic guitar solo, no synths at all in this song. Uh, but the real focus for me are the lyrics to this song. And he paints a wonderful picture about the idyllic country life while singing a song about sharing your love and not keeping it to yourself. Uh, the, the lyrics, black ash from the foundry hangs like a hood. But the air is perfumed by the burning firewood. The seeds are bursting, the springs are seeping. Lay down, my darling, love ain't for keeping. How good is that? It's so good. Uh, I love I love the multi-tracked acoustic guitars on this, too. The fact that they were able to sort of record and record over themselves a couple of times to get that effect, it sounds so cool. Yeah, they're shimmery. Yeah. I love that. It's a uh, good word for it. Shimmery? Shimmery. Shimmery. Uh, it was recorded many, many times, and there are a ton of alternate versions of this song that have appeared on Scoop and other compilations, most of which are much harder 
rockier versions of this song, but this version is far and away my favorite. And how do you do, how do you deny the greatness of this? I think this one also really shows off that there's sort of always been this thing where American rock and roll influences British rock and roll and British rock and roll influences American rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that influenced American rock and roll, British rockers picked onto it and and grabbed it and said, we need to study this like blues Mm -hmm. and country and all the stuff that came before rock and gospel. And then it influenced the British rockers who then the Americans were like, wow, those guys have a unique sound. I wonder where it came from. We should latch onto that and start to copy it. (laughs) No, it came from right here. Right. And it's like, no, that was right in your backyard. But I really think that when you see a song like this on an album, it definitely is from that cycle. Like some British band, the who for sure was listening to country. They were listening to, uh, you know, classic old rock blues, uh, uh, like I said, even gospel music, and they were pulling from it to get these kind of ideas. Uh, it is great, uh, it is. but it was not critically well-received. One critic calling it faintly pretty, but negligible. It, like most of the other songs, was originally intended for the Lifehouse project, and the demo version of that was much harder. It was performed on the Lifehouse Chronicles radio play in 1999 for the BBC, but as Chris said, it was dreadful. As glorious as the music is that they recorded in 1971, the story is as cold and dreadful as post-apocalyptic England sounds. <laughs> so not good. Yeah. My wife. Oh, see, I was just about to say, <laughs> in writing this, and every time I say the title of this, I have to think, not Borat, not Borat voice, not Borat voice. You have to do it. My wife, you have to pronounce it like that. Oh, sorry. You have to pronounce it like a white guy with a stick up your ass. My, my wife. wife. There you go. My wife. <laughs> uh, written by John Entwistle, uh, yeah. who also sings, plays bass, piano, and horns on this track. Yeah, all the brass. Uh, go ahead. No, I was saying, also, uh, like you just mentioned, uh, uh, Love Ain't For Keeping, part of the Lifehouse Project. This one, not part of the Lifehouse Project. Right. It's also the only song in the record, actually there's two, that does not include Roger Daltrey at any point on oh. the song. It doesn't. He's not anywhere to be found. It tells the tale of a man who went to the bar, had too much to drink, got thrown in the drunk tank, and now he's trying to avoid the wrath of his wife, as she assumed he was with another woman for the night. It is essentially the comedy of the record. Uh, And if there is a song that doesn't hold up to the rest of the record, this is the one. It sounds like this.
This is kind of an I didn't fuck song. <laughs> like, baby, I swear, I didn't do it. Uh, that's good. That gives us a chance to talk about Mr. Entwistle. Mm. Born in 1944, he was actually the only member of the band to have any formal musical training. He was nicknamed either The Ox or Thunderfingers for his proficient use of all of his fingers on his strumming hand and the quick way he played the bass. Uh, he credited his early piano and trumpet playing for giving him the finger strength to play the way he did. He also popularized the use of bass harmonics in rock music, giving more a, a more rounded, more complete sound. And he was also renowned for his bass sound, which was tremendously loud <laughs> and very full. He's repeatedly been voted the number one bass player in all of rock history. And here's a short list of the bass players that name him as a primary influence Tom Hamilton of Aerosmith, Geezer Butler of Black Sabbath, Steve Harris of Iron Maiden, Chris Novoselic of Nirvana, Cliff Burton of Metallica, Chris Squire of Yes, and one Getty Lee of Rush. Who? No, this is, I'm talking about oh, Rush. Oh, okay, sorry, sorry. Well, this is a Who episode. It's a Who episode, you're talking about Rush, yeah. okay. Uh, he would go uh, to play on with many bands, have a pretty solid catalog of solo material in between all of his other Who obligations through the years. He's also a very accomplished artist and had many showings. Uh, unfortunately, he died of a heart attack caused by an undetermined amount of cocaine and arterial disease here in Las Vegas at the Hard Rock Hotel one day before the beginning of their 2002 world tour. He, like most rock stars, failed to take care of himself through the years and still had some addiction demons. But the Who carried on as they did when they lost Keith Moon. And we will get to that one soon. Yeah. The song is over. Wow, that's really depressing. I know. But it isn't oh, but over. That's true. It's, this, in fact, just the beginning. It's just the beginning of the album. It's the closer to the A-side, but it's uh, we're only halfway done with the album. Yeah, this this song, along with uh, a couple others on the record, were central to the Lifehouse project. This song was actually intended to be the final song of Lifehouse. And I love this song because it achieves that balance again between the tenderness of the verses sung by Townsend and the grittiness of the choruses sung by Daltrey. Sounds like this. Our love is over They're all ahead now I've got to learn it I'm gonna sing out I'll sing my song So like you said, this was originally going to be the end to Lifehouse, and it would have taken place when the police invade the Lifehouse Theater, uh, and all the concertgoers disappear as they become one with God or the universe or, or whatever. Uh, and John Atkins, author of The Who on Record, A Critical History, 1963 to 1998, has identified this song, 
Getting in Tune and Pure and Easy as being the three songs that most are most central to the Lifehouse concept, as they, quote, reflect the central idea of music as a source of social and spiritual power. Well, that's lovely. Right? The song's premise is that of a love song, but told from the viewpoint of looking at a song like a relationship. It is wonderful, features strong performances from the whole band, and there's some great drum things going on. The bass is superb, as always, but the shining part of the song, for me anyways, is the vocal performance of Roger Daltrey. Mm -hmm. This song also features a guest performance by Nicky Hopkins on piano. Uh, Hopkins played for the Stones for a number of years, both live and on studio albums, as well as the Kinks and several other groups from the 60s and 70s. He was also a Scientologist and credited them with helping him beat his addictions, and as a result, contributed to several of L. Ron Hubbard's musical recordings. Mm. For more, more of that, you should check out Chick Corea's Judo Chop, <laughs> because, uh, yeah. well, that's a real treat <laughs> for the ears. <laughs> Sadly, he passed away in 1994 from a lifelong battle oh. with Crohn's disease. Uh, also, one last thing. The final song, final lines of the song, There is a Note, Pure and Easy, alludes to another song from the Lifehouse Project called Pure and Easy that would end up appearing on a compilation album called Odds and Sods. Which is a great name. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Odds, Odds and, and Sods. It's also a fantastic song and could have easily fit on this record. Which is too bad. But, you know. You'd rather get in tune. I would rather getting in tune. R would rather getting in would tune. Would rather getting in tune. It had, <laughs> had to be the actual name of the song. Okay, getting uh, in tune. <laughs> it's ultimately a, a song about Pete Townshend finding a center between his spiritual beliefs and his rock star persona, because they're kind of at odds with one another, if you really think about it. If you're supposed to be constantly giving back to the universe and helping people and, and trying to become one with the universe, you can't really have that rock star persona of, look at me, pay attention to me and what I'm doing on stage, because I'm wonderful. So what about when he waves his hands up, does the windmill guitar? Isn't I think that? that is him sending things out into the universe. Oh, uh, ooh. Yeah, there you go. He's sending uh, sound out into the universe. I like that. To to add to the the, the oneness, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I'm making that up. Starts the second side of the record in sparkling style. This song was also written for Lifehouse. And it's classical lyrical motif of a songwriter who wrote a great tune, but has no lyrics to go with it. Hence the, I'm singing this note because it fits in well with the chords I'm playing. Can't pretend there's any meaning here or thick. Here, I'll let them play it for you. I'm singing this note because it fits in well with the chords I'm playing. I can't pretend there's any meaning hidden in the things I'm saying, but I'm in tune, right in tune. Author uh, Chris Charlesworth interprets this song as using a band tuning up uh, for a show as a metaphor for creating harmony among diverse groups, which is a beautiful sentiment. Also a good quote. Right. Once again, great bass work by John Entwistle also features a restrained Keith Moon until the end. It's really frantic. Um, Keith Moon. That's a tragic figure. Yeah. 
He was the kid who refused to grow up. He was born in Northwest London, was hyperactive, and most likely would have been diagnosed with ADHD if he were a young man today. Uh, His art teacher would describe him as, and I'm sorry for this terminology, but this was the early 50s, retarded artistically and idiotic in other respects. Hmm. He joined the Sea Cadets as a bugle player and determined pretty early on that it was too hard. So he did what every intelligent musician does at that point. He switched to the drums. He loved practical jokes and had a particular keenness for explosions. Yes. A fondness that continued well into adulthood. As The Who began touring in 65, he began blowing up toilets in the hotels they stayed in. Something he continued to do (laughs) for their entire touring career. He also majored in destroying hotel rooms. (laughs) Conservative estimates placed the number at about a half a million dollars in 60s dollars. His reputation was so much ingrained in him that and who he was that one time he left a hotel and as he got in the car, he said, wait a minute, I forgot something. Proceeded to go back to his hotel room and threw the TV out the window (laughs) because that's what was expected of him. Oh, that's great. Also uh, notorious about Moon was his consumption of alcohol and other drugs. He would often pass out on stage or before going on stage, much to the consternation of his bandmates. In 1970, uh, while involved in a fight at a bar in England, uh, pub patrons had begun to attack his Bentley. Moon, who was naturally drunk, got into the driver's seat to escape and ended up running over his friend, bodyguard, and driver, Neil Boland, killing him. Coroner ruled it an accident, but Moon never really recovered from it. He continued to slide in the 70s, and in 1978, he rented a flat, ironically the same flat that Mama Cass had died in four years before, and was attempting to dry out. He got into a fight with his girlfriend and ended up overdosing on the medicine he was taking to help stay off of alcohol. He took 30 pills. Six was enough to kill him, and he was just 32 years old. Uh, Lost in the mayhem of Moon's life was the fact that he was an amazing, innovative, and musical drummer. He had problems with meter, and that may have been on purpose his whole career as he pushed and pulled the band along, but it never really detracted from the musicality of his drumming. Neil Peart of Rush named him as one of his primary influences, even recreating Moon's Pictures of Lily drum kit. Uh, kit in his later years. So wow. Moon was a legend, and he is sorely missed by his bandmates and rock music. Uh, it would have been amazing to see what he would have done the rest of those years. Well, sorry. That's sad. Well, uh, but uh, it's a story that has to be told. Obviously, you can't talk about The Who without talking about Keith Moon. That's correct. And the, again, they've carried on with a series of drummers since him, Simon Palmer, even, I mean, just a number of. Uh, very talented drummers in their own right. Yeah. Going mobile? Going mobile. The next song, a song about a, an RV, or as you call it in England, a, a caravan. Yeah. Uh, uh, why not? Sure. RV life. Right? A lot of, a lot of fans consider, uh, consider this a throwaway song. Yeah. But, but I love it. Uh, another song from the Lifehouse Project furthers the narrative by getting away from the city and pollution and living on the move. I love the tempo and the energy. Definitely has the vibe of a guy on the move. You be the judge. Bye. 
I love that part. The beep beeps. Beep beep. This is another of the songs on the record that was performed without Roger Daltrey in the studio. Townsend handles all the vocals, guitars, the ARP synthesizer. The guitar solo is actually recorded through the ARP, utilizing a feature that gives it the wah-wah sound. Oh, yeah. I believe it was called the envelope something? Envelope follower. Oh. Do you uh, have something yeah, about that? Yeah, I do. It's an electronic circuit that takes a relatively high-frequency amplitude modulated signal as input and provides an output, which is the demodulated envelope of the original signal. I have no clue what any of that means. But uh, simplified, it means means it makes it make a wah wah sound. Good so, enough for me. Yeah, I, I got no. <laughs> like I was, I was looking into that, and I was like, "What the hell are they talking That's about?" Awesome. I didn't know I needed a physics class to understand this Who album, but all right, you do. I know a few uh, months ago we did a judo chop episode about songs that make you get a speeding ticket. Yeah, this was a prime contender on my list, but didn't make yeah. the cut. If you are interested in listening to that, please subscribe to our Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash audio judo, and we'll give you more details at the end of the show. Yeah. But behind Kyle's blue eyes. Uh, this might be the Who's <laughs> best known song. I believe it, it. I believe you're probably correct. I mean, it's been covered by so many other people. It's it's so popular. It's been used. I mean, you look at a lot of these others, uh, Bob O'Reilly, everybody knows that. And you, I don't even consider this a lot of the time. I don't even register this as a song by The Who. Right. But it is. And it's it's incredibly popular. It's been used over and over and over again in media and in, in commercials and in, in everywhere. Uh, it was conceived for the Lifehouse Project. Uh, it was originally the villain's theme song from the concept album. Townsend said this. Behind Blue Eyes really is off the wall because that was a song sung by the villain of the piece, Jumbo. The fact that he felt in the original story that he was forced into a position of being a villain, whereas he always felt that he was the good guy. And there's probably some autobiographical construct there. Pete originally wrote it after a show in 1970 in Denver after being tempted by a groupie. He went back to his room, wrote a prayer to Meher Baba, the first lines being, if my fist clenches, crack it open. And what I love so much about this song is, once again, the band's ability to balance the sweet and tender moments with really aggressive moments. And it's some heady stuff, and this is what I'm talking about right here. My love is vengeance That's never free Uh, the song would eventually be released as a single in the States, top out at number 34. One of the other th- uh, things that is noticeable about the song are the similarities between the end of this song and parts of the next song, as if they were to tie together in Lifehouse. Uh, also, and I am very hesitant to bring this up because I know Randy will dig it up and stick it on here, <laughs> but Limp Biscuit, is it Limp Bizkit? Bizquit. Recorded a widely panned cover version of this song in 2003. And lo and behold, 
Rolling Stone got this one right as they deemed this the second worst cover song of all time. <laughs> wow. You want to know what number one was? I was just about to ask if you looked it up. Miley Cyrus's Smells Like Teen Spirit. Oh, yeah. That would be. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Yeesh. That is certainly a, a choice. Okay. But I know Randy's going to go find it. Of and course. Stick it on here and. It'll be sad. Do you think that he will fool you again? Not again. I won't get fooled again. Oh. But. Eight minutes and 36 seconds of pure rock goodness to close out this album. This is how you finish an album. Right here. Is there a better frontman moment in uh, all of rock history? I don't think so. That it, this for sure is a top three contender. Rolling Stone lists this as number 134 on the 500 greatest songs of all time. I'd personally list it way higher than that because it is superb. Another Lifehouse song. One of the songs that was supposed to, uh, was supposed to be an ender after the universal chord had been played. And it is a song of absolute defiance channeling the rock and roll energy and everything that has been building up to this moment. Let's start with a synthesizer. Townsend started by interviewing a bunch of people, captured their heartbeats, brainwaves, and asked them questions about their astrological charts and converted the results into a series of audio pulses. He then fed them through his Lowry organ, and then another synth, and then eventually through the ARP. The resulting sounds were the keyboard parts that start the song and are present throughout. Who the fuck does that? That is amazing. In 1971. Yeah. How far ahead of his time, at least in the rock and roll scope, was this guy? It's incredible. Uh, it's eight, like you said, it's eight and a half minutes of rock and roll glory. There are all the huge power chords and the fantastic work of the whole band. And if this is the histrionic vocals that Robert Christgau was talking about, I will take it any day of the week. He's a boob. <laughs> uh, Townsend described this song as uh, not strictly anti-revolution, despite the lyrics, we'll, we'll be fighting in the streets, but stressed that revolution could be unpredictable, adding, quote, don't expect to see what you expect to see, expect nothing, and you might gain everything. Huh. I'm going to have to sit down with that quote for... Yeah, that's a, that feels like something you'd get out of a fortune cookie. I don't... <laughs> that one hurt my head. <laughs> uh, the song would eventually top at number 84 on the U.S. charts, but charts really mean nothing in album-oriented radio, and it would eventually sell 200,000 copies on its own. I also love this part because it's a, it, this song of defiance. It's so great. And it goes by like in a second. Yeah. Eight and a half minutes doesn't feel like eight and a half minutes. No, it does not. Uh, Van Halen also took this song to number one on the album Rock Charts. 
with their version from 1992. And who can actually listen to this song without picturing David Caruso oh my God. ripping off his sunglasses at the beginning of CSI Miami? Horatio Kane delivers a one-liner and then, yeah! It's so good. <laughs> it's part of pol- it's part of pop culture now. It is. Even if you're inside, you got sunglasses even, on. It's like, even if you don't, sunglasses even on. if you don't know who the who is, you know that you bit. You know that bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, if you want to see a really great version of this song, Jimmy Fallon and the Roots performed it with Daltrey and Townsend on uh, twenty. Uh, tw- Tiny Twiny. toy instruments. Twenty toy instruments. toy instruments. It's very, very cool stuff. So this is, for me, uh, one of the best rock records ever made. And it continues to gain fans all the time. And there's really no way to do this album justice. We merely scratched the surface on Lifehouse and the genius that is Pete Townsend. Oh, yeah. Reams have been written about him and the band's legacy, and will continue to be. And in this format, we could talk for hours, but we like to let the music do some of the speaking and give you some detail and some main points. I had to cut so much stuff that I wrote about... So you were saying, you know, for Won't Get Fooled Again, how he interviewed people and took their their brainwaves and their pulse and everything and, and turned it into music. He took that idea later on and actually turned it into a musical creation machine. Oh, and he he had speculated about it for years and years and years, and the idea was that you could in Lifehouse they write about a machine that can create music from you know people, uh, their brainwaves and and things, and it creates the perfect song for them, and then they take all those songs and combine them together, and that's the song that everybody listens to to create the perfect note that turns everybody into one with the universe and God. Simple concept. Simple concept. He actually went on to work with engineers and people to design that machine. And for years, it was so complicated because it just wasn't possible. And then he kind of shelved it. And in the late 2007, 8, 9, late 2000s, uh, they built it. They built it as a website. Mm. And it wasn't quite as described in the Lifehouse Chronicles, but it was very close. And for several years, you could go on there and answer some questions, and you could talk into a microphone and upload some pictures and things, and it would actually create a song for you based on your input. Oh, that's awesome. And sadly, it is something that was it was made in Flash, um, which is now derelict. So it's it's very difficult to go back and, and make it work again. Um, hopefully someday it was also sort of a limited time thing. They were using it as a promotion for something. So it right. was only live for two or three years, I believe. Um, you can go look at it on the, uh, the Wayback, Wayback machine, machine yeah. uh, on archive.org. And it's, it's very cool. I wish I could remember the name of the project, but, uh, if you search for it, I'm sure you'll find it. I did. Um, but it, I had two pages of notes on that. Cause I was like, that's so cool. Right. And then I was like, but it has nothing directly to do with this album. <laughs> I'm going to put those away for later. So, well, there's a a trove of stuff out there to learn. And uh, part of it has to do with the fact that there is a mountain of material that they recorded over the years. Like, there's plenty of Who stuff, volumes of music to be listened to and discovered. And I'm sure Chris is sitting there wondering why we didn't talk about this or that. Well, of course. Um, but hey, but we put a limit on ourselves. I'm not going to talk all day. I mean, I could, but I'm not going to. <laughs> so, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, there is a way for you to get more. How would they do that? Indeed, there is. We have a Patreon. 
So if you want to support us and uh, support the podcast, you can go on there for five bucks a month. You can join the tier that we call Front Row Seats. At that tier, you get two-day early access to all of these episodes, so you can hear it on the Wednesday before everybody else hears it on Friday. Uh, you get a shout-out in a future episode as a, as a loyal producer. Um, you also get bonus mini-episodes called Judo Chops. Uh, we release one of those every other week in between the regular episodes, and they're between five and 20-ish minutes, um, and they usually cover a subject that was either too small for a regular episode or too broad for a regular episode, generally speaking. Um, you also get occasional bonus content, such as unedited interviews, uh, behind-the-scenes videos, and tiny tidbits that got cut out of episodes, mostly due to us burping and farting. Mm-hmm. You want to help us out a little bit more and get a little something for yourself, you can step up to the backstage pass tier. It is $20 a month. However, it includes everything from the $5 a month front row seats tier, as well as a very special personalized gift, um, the chance to co-host an audio judo episode on the album of your choice uh, as well. Uh, but that benefit only activates after one year of patronage at that tier level, and it can only be activated once. Uh, and all, like I said, all the benefits from the uh, front row seats tier. Well, that was well done. Thank you. I feel like I stumbled a little bit, but no, we'll you're keep fine. Going. Uh, if you want to listen to uh, more episodes, you can check those out at audiojudo.com. If you want to get a hold of us, easiest way is through Twitter at audiojudo. You can also try Facebook, Facebook forward slash audiojudo, or even Instagram at audio underscore judo. If you want to send us a longer note, you can send an email to info at audiojudo.com. Also, don't forget about our jazz series out right now called Audio Judo Does Jazz. You can find that at audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ. And I think that is all for now. Uh, so have a great couple weeks, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>